Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The NFL season is in full swing. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Let's take a look at some of the games this Sunday in the NFL. A couple games I like. I mean, I hate to pile on the New York Jets, but I'm going to do it. The Buffalo Bills are an 11.5 point favorites at the New York Jets. I'm going to go with Buffalo. The other game I like is the New England Patriots, minus two against the San Francisco 49ers in Foxborough. I look for Cam in New England to bounce back and even up their record this week. So take uh, so I like those two teams, New England and Buffalo. As I always say, don't blame me if you lose your money. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports. I'm here upstate New York at an undisclosed location. Uh, and, uh, you know, here with my buddy and co-host, the great Jamal Murph. Murph! Bill, I'm, I'm chilling. I'm chilling still in Brooklyn. Nothing's changing, man. It's, every day is the same. Yeah, well, wait till November 3rd, brother. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> let's, you know, don't, do, don't start depressing me, okay? Yeah, anyway. But, I'm, re- yeah. I'm re- you know, I-, I feel decently about it, though. Okay, you're not, you're not gonna be- bring me down, Bill. Well, we're not gonna discuss it. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to tell people, you know, don't listen to the stuff about polls and all that stuff. You gotta really stay focused because right. this cat man is one of the worst people you've ever, in terms of doing anything, anything. But l- anyway, listen, yeah. world of sports. Let's get. We got a tremendous, tremendous, uh, tremendous guest. Great journalist, friend of the program. Make it a repeat visit. Um, uh, somebody I admire, admired back when she was with SNY. Now she's with Bleach Report. The wonderful Taylor Rooks. The wonderful Taylor Rooks. Oh, thank you. What an intro. Oh, my gosh. No, I'm so happy to be back here with you guys. I've missed your faces. So thank you for having me. But you've been busy. Let, let me yes. ask you a question. This isn't on Zoom, but do you just like wake up like this? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> now I know you, never, you, I, you, know, you didn't hear the song. You know, you know how you know you hear the Beyonce song. Oh, no, no, no. You know but I, I, I do not. I, I know. Before I did this, you know, I did my eyebrows. Sure, sure, around, you know? yeah, so, yeah, okay. yeah, right. Whatever you say, whatever. But you know, you see, say. I had, of course, I had a daughter, daughter, wife, obviously, and it takes. I was telling brother. I mean, women. It's like what you see when you see a woman come in the street. It's like two hours. Worth of preparation what are you to talking get like about? me too, Bill. You know, it's like yeah, right. You, you do look put on amazing the... when you wake up, but then you want to just look a different kind of amazing, right? Like, you know, yeah. it's it's just two different. I like amazing. I like that better. I like that. Yeah, better. that that's a good thing. But guys, though, for the most, I mean, you know, what do we do? We 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 get. Oh, okay. Hold on. Uh, uh oh, an express package. I'm gonna tell you guys what I've got. Uh-oh. But you know, guys, guys, you know, get up. You know, I'll throw on my, my white shirt, you know, maybe wash the face, brush the teeth. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. You know, I might. If I'm, well, if I'm going on it anyway, but <laughs> we can talk. That's another show. But no, that's, that's a fact. But I also think I always say to guys, like knowing that fact, think about just like how different our lives go. You know, one of the reasons you're able to put on your white shirt, maybe or maybe not brush your teeth and go out into the world and be fine is because you aren't necessarily first seen because of your appearance. I think True. because of the yeah. way society is. We are like, okay, let's, you know, let's start looking good. But yeah, and, and we, we, that's a very so good point. Things. Yeah, we talked about that. We talked about that thing when you were on the show the first time. Yeah. Uh, is how in, in this industry, you know, nobody, I mean, look at all the, the slobs who are, you know, particularly <laughs> in our business, guys right. coming up any kind of way and that kind of stuff. Uh, when you are a woman, you're right. I mean, you're judged by how you look and 
and all these other things. And um, I don't know. Let me ask you a question. I mean, this is this wasn't a part of the script. Uh, <laughs> yeah, none of this was part of the script, but this is real. Right. Uh, when we talked to you last, you were with uh, SNY. Uh, you had your talk show and all that. Now you've um, you, you've been with uh, Bleacher Report. The, yeah. You do a fen- phenomenal job. I, I really want to talk about the bubble. But before we do that, what's the transition been like? Uh, tell me, you know, you were in SNY. Just tell me about the transition going from there, climbing Jacob's Ladder, yeah. and now being with uh, uh, Bleacher Report. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely a transition in terms of roles and responsibility and every single thing that I'm doing, right? You know, at SNY, I was, you know, anchoring a nightly show. So I did that often. It was a very specific routine. I knew what I was talking about. I was more so relaying the news of the day to the viewer, you know, a studio show. Um, and then I was also doing the podcast, but it was it was different responsibilities with that role. But now that I'm Bleacher, where I have a show, where I'm the executive mm. producer, I host the show. I also book some of the talent. Like there is more things that come with it. And the schedule and routine is different. I obviously... Mm travel uh, exponentially mm. more you know when the world was normal i was traveling exponentially more than i was when i was at sny i think also just covering things from a national lens as opposed to just covering things happening in new york is a completely uh different ball game something that i love though I, i'm really right. enjoying being able to you know dip my toe in the water everywhere which is which is really nice and there's some different experiences that i was only able to have because I'm now, you know, a national reporter as opposed to just, you know, regional in New York, things like going to the bubble, things like mm. I've now, I've now covered two Super Bowls. I've covered two all-star weekends. And those are things that I just wasn't doing when I was just in New York. And that's obviously no shade against us and why I like loved that job. I loved covering New York sports. It's just your world opens up so much. Um, when you come to come to a national platform and your responsibilities just continue to increase and your voice increases and your platform yeah. increases. So it's a domino effect in the best way. How, how did, uh, uh, I'm always thinking about this almost as a, as a teacher too, you know, I run this fellowship uh, yeah. for, 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 for young HBCU kids. And that's always a thing for everybody, a career path. How do you go from one rung to another? Uh, and we've all got different paths. How did this come about? Was it, um, you know, the transition? You know, you're working hard, you're grinding, you're at SNY. How did the Bleach Report thing come about? You know, I mean, I wanted more, right? Like, I wanted to do more with my voice. And I always tell people, you know, I think just because you have a job that you love doesn't mean you have a job that's always fulfilling. Mm. And I didn't always feel incredibly fulfilled sitting at the desk saying what happened at practice right like i just didn't feel like that was the thing i was meant to be doing but once i started doing my podcast at sny where i was having these very long form intimate meaningful conversations with people i was like this feels fulfilling to me you know i am connecting with others and bringing stories to listeners like that felt fulfilling to me and that's when i kind of said like there's something else that will make me feel full um and that was bleacher report and turner sports giving me you know my own show my platform to do that and i always think about when i was in college i had a professor his name is christopher benson he is like still a mentor of mine to this day and when i got out of school and i was just like kind of talking about my path and what i wanted he told me that you should always be motivated by the pull and not the push. Mm. And so I mm. always try to think about that when any opportunity is presented to me. It's like, do I, am I moving to this because it's pulling me because it's the right thing? Or am I only moving on because I, you know, I'm tired, I'm irritated, I want to be pushed out of the situation. Mm. And I have found yeah. that the pull definitely seems much more in line with the things that I want to accomplish in my career. And it also, I think, creates a better environment uh, for you in that next phase. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you mentioned your show on Bleach Report and Turner. Uh, take it there with Taylor Rooks. It's in mm-hmm. the second season now. Um, one of the things about you is, you know, when you listen to your interviews, it's, it's like you said, it's not all, it's not all about sports. Mm-hmm. You're you're probably one of the, you know, you're one of the most consistent reporters in terms of yeah. uh, bringing up um, social issues and racial issues and having uh, players discuss those issues on your show. Um, you know, where does that, where did that come from? Has that always been a part of you? You know, 
It's interesting because I don't know if it's always been a part of me. You know, I think that the easy answer is to say, I've always been this way, but I would say I realized that it needed to be in everybody's purview and in everybody's face, probably when I graduated college. Mm. Um, and I do think, you know, there's that book, you know, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? I don't know if you got, you have heard about it, mm. or read that, but um, mm. in it, it talks about how people have awakenings at different times. You know, people kind of start understanding the world and their space in the world at different times. I obviously, always knew I was a black woman. I obviously always knew that black people were treated, you know, differently um, than some others. I don't know if I realized how important it was to shed light on that when you can until I until I graduated college. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, I have felt like it's been a big responsibility of mine to make sure I'm asking the right questions and helping people understand that saying somebody should be treated correctly because of their skin color isn't politics, right? And while that is social justice, that is the accurate term, I'm kind of like, is that even social justice? Right. Like, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like, right. Right. I think that at minimum, that's just the way that it, it should be. And right. I don't right. know why, you know, bringing this up in interviews and tweeting and stuff, it even becomes a debate. So. I'm not a person who ever like second guesses having that conversation. I never hesitate to have that conversation, mainly because I think it's a conversation that should be normalized and a conversation that everybody should be having. But obviously there have been horrific things that have happened recently. I mean, horrific things that have happened throughout the history of America, but you know, things that have happened recently where I don't really think you have a choice right. um, whether you want to address it or have the conversation with athletes who, you know, have the attention of the masses. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's been great. Like Jamal said, that you were really consistently keeping that thing front and center. And, and as journalists, you have a choice to not do that mm -hmm. or let's go down that way. It seems to me, and you can tell me, it seems to me that, um, there was a time that being an Uncle Tom in the business got you rewarded. But now it's almost like the white corporate has almost gone the other way. They want black, they want you to be militant, you know, like, you know, because of Black Lives Matter, you know, Black Lives Matter, you gotta be more black. But have you sensed that, to me, you get more respect by being black? I mean, not, 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 not going around the block, not, you know, just by being proud and forceful. Do you, do you sense that shift? Uh, I would say, you know, I think that you get more respect when people don't feel like you're playing a role. Yeah. And for some people, you know, like to me, it's authentic to me to talk about those issues, right? Like, and I think that people understand that that's not a role that I'm playing. You know, I always say, you know, I have been a black woman much longer than I've been a journalist. So right. I can yeah. talk to you about those experiences with probably, you know, you know, much more knowledge than I can about anything else. You have just decided that you only want to hear the sports journalism part of it. Um, but that other part is very important and I think kind of crucial to, to the job that I do as well. But to your point, I do truly believe that Black people have a responsibility to shed light on these things. And I just know that when I came into this space, I said, I want to do what helps me sleep at night. You know, mm. I want to do whatever I can look into the mirror and say, yeah. like, you did the right thing. The thing that was right for Black people, for women, for Black yeah. women, yeah. or anybody who is marginalized. Like, I feel like my responsibilities are to that. And if I was to do anything that deterred from that path, I wouldn't feel right. Um, and so that that's just kind of the responsibility that I, that I think uh, many of us have, and that many of us rise up to. Yeah. And before before we get to the bubble, just a question: you know, how do you deal yeah. with the the haters and like yeah. you know the the bots and and all that stuff on social media? Yeah. You know, and you know, time you know times are changing, I guess, and you know some people are more you know ready for you to be yourself. But you have this strong group of people, and we mm -hmm. touched on it in the beginning of the show, you know, who may be voting for a particular person who yeah. don't feel that way. How do you deal with that kind of hatred that comes your way sometimes? Yeah, totally. I mean, I always say the moon doesn't bark back at the dog. So <laughs> I am not a person who will 
tweet back a bunch of things like that. I have also kind of had this shift of, you know, yes, I think when the opportunity presents itself where you can give your opinion to somebody who has a differing opinion and you can have a dialogue that can help them understand something that they probably maybe just have never understood or had to understand, there can be meaningful, fruitful conversation that can happen from that. But I have also learned through time that it is not our job to educate somebody or to convince somebody that mm. black people shouldn't be killed, right? right? right. Like mm. when did that become our <laughs> right. job and our right. role? So someone can tweet me as much as they want and it, it doesn't sway me either way. The mm. only thing I would say it points out to me is how far we really do have to go. Right. Also, the way that social media in some terrible ways has normalized hate and has normalized bullying. Yeah. As, as, much, as many of the amazing things that come with these platforms, there are some really bad things that we should all really look deep inside and figure out what we want to be okay as we progress as a society. Social media is only going to continue to become more powerful to have you know a larger platform do we want it to be a platform that yeah. breeds racism and misogyny and sexism and and things like that or do we want it to be a positive you know kind of breeding ground so they, these are just i think decisions that society as a whole needs to yeah. needs to really figure out so what do you so i mean that, that that raises inter, uh, inter we can't use more interesting. That raises a um, uh, a question about what is what do you consider? I mean, again, my generation, you know, Jamal's generation, in terms of being in the media, is things are totally different. There was a mainstream. What what do you think is mainstream now? And and it, because this is, I, I guess you're 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 in a great space in that mm-hmm. you knew what it was like, kind of old school in terms of. Yeah. The, the traditional mainstream, but now you are like really in this whole thing of this new social media. What's the answer? I mean, um, what what do you think uh, to, to kind of answer some of your own questions about how do you police this? How do you? Yeah. Well, one thing I'll answer that question. One thing I do think is important, and I was actually having this conversation with Bomani Jones once. It's like social media actually isn't the masses. I think that we're tricked into believing us the masses because it's the loudest. And and the, I really realized that really during the last presidential election because man, if you look at social media, I'm like, nobody likes Trump. Yeah. Nobody love for Trump. You know what I mean? Like, I was sure, I was like, what? Like, ain't nobody talking about Trump. I'm looking <laughs> at Twitter, I'm looking at Instagram, blah, blah, blah. But I was, but obviously we, we were all wrong in, in that thought. Um, so right. the same way that we say things like, you know, don't rely on, you know, polls and everything about voting, really don't rely on what you're seeing on social media. Right. I would say what you should rely on is what's happening in real life. And that's much different than what's happening on your phone or your computer. Like you really have to look around and I think understand that. But to your question, social media still does play a role in these things. And I don't really know how you can police people, but what I do say a lot is we should shift the conversation from teaching people how to deal with being bullied or disrespected and make the conversation about teaching people to not bully nor disrespect. I mean, I guess what I'm saying, I didn't ask the question. I mean, I didn't ask the question properly. In other words, you still have Bleacher Report, yeah. uh, the New York Times, Washington Post. There's certain things that are still considered Okay, well, I saw the Bleach Report, or I see it in SNY, or I see, you know, okay, that to me, um, is that still a bedrock of, of, of um, legitimacy or, or not? Or are we totally in this wild, wild west yeah. of journalism? There has, there has to be something, there has to be some bedrock of, that you could believe. Uh, right. You know, and uh, I guess, I guess that what's your role? <laughs> what's your role yeah. in being believable and saying that if you hear, I am a trusted source? I think one thing I do try to do in my reporting and interviews and things like that is I have always felt like 
the best way to be trusted or the best way to give news is you just go to that source, like go right. to the person. Yeah, like yeah. this is a very small um, example, but you know, a couple of days ago when John Wall was playing spades, when, you know, during the ESPN interview and everybody was talking about it, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, I think it'd be nice to just like ask John Wall about that, yeah, that's you right. know, and nobody, it was like, nobody thought to just ask John. So right, right, right. I just texted him like that. And I think that when people see me do little things like that, they're feeling like, oh, I can trust her because she's literally talking yes. to the person. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Or like a week ago when a report came out and it was like, there's a report, it's unconfirmed that Russell Westbrook left a large tip to the hotel staff. I was like, well, I'm gonna just call Russell and see, you know what I mean? Like, and I think that that has built up a lot of my like credibility and people feeling like, well, if you want to know exactly what happened, you can go to Taylor mainly because Taylor went to that person. Um, I think that it makes better stories for me um, and it, it helps me become a better reporter, but it also like brings the, you know, the good story to others. So I think it's a twofold experience that's very beneficial for both parties and I think athletes also feel comfortable telling me things or want to come to me for things because I am not somebody who ever wants to misconstrue what someone said. I'm not somebody who wants to create a headline for clicks. That just goes back to, it's not authentic to me. That's not something that I'd be able to look in the mirror and feel like I was, you know, a good person that day. Mm -hmm. So I, I think kind of, that's the main thing I try to do for people to, to think that, you know, what I'm doing is, is credible and something that you can really put a lot of stock in. No, that's, that, yeah. that's a great, that, that, that's actually, I teach this course and I'm sorry, Jamal, I know oh, go ahead. but I teach this, <laughs> uh, this course uh, at Arizona State, at, at, uh, column writing, the art of the column. Okay. And one of the things we talk about, oh, I've told everybody is exactly what you were saying in terms of sources. Yeah, uh, of, it's so important. Being able to go right to the source, but of course that takes time. In other words, that doesn't happen your first day on the job. I mean, right. the reason you could tweet John Wall or Westbrook or whomever, yeah. that didn't just happen. For that sure. happens For sure. over a course of of time. So that's another thing, too. You, it, it takes time for people to be able to look at you, trust you, and then, you know, so that's just, there's no formula for that. That just takes Yeah. Time. No, I agree with that. But I would also say, and I, like, so much of it too is making sure that those that you have interviewed trust you before, after, and during the interview. Because I can point to people like, for example, DeMar DeRozan. I had him on my show the first season. I think it was the best interview of either season. But that was the first time I ever met DeMar. But the reason he even decided and agreed to doing the interview was because he had seen the other ones. Mm -hmm. Because he had spoken to people that he saw th that I did interviews with. So while those like sources and relationships take time to build, the best way to build those is to already create solid ones with the ones that you have. Because that to me has been the biggest asset for the relationship building. Even when I was doing the podcast at SNY, I would have someone on and then I'd say, hey, will you ask your teammate if he'll do the podcast? Uh, and if somebody right. enjoyed it right, and they right. like the response they got from the podcast, they will ask their teammate or their friend. Like, so it's it's super important, like not to just right. focus on one of those relationships, but to focus on all of them and understanding that having one good relationship could really mean having 20 good relationships, you know? Right. So right. That, right. I mean, right. that's right. very good advice that you give, you know, your, your students in your column writing class. Yeah, and being and being real and genuine, I think, is the most important thing. Like, yeah. you, like you pointed out, because I still think that's rare. I, th I still think it's rare for the reporter not just to be trying to get clicks. For sure, think, you know. So I think that you stand out when you do that, and you know, athletes yeah. will trust you. Everybody will trust you. Yeah, and I think like one thing people don't realize is the clicks will always find themselves. Right. You know what I mean? Like the the conversation that you continue to have that's free flowing, like that's when the click will come. Right. Or like I didn't have to like find some cool story about John Wall. The story was there, right? right. I just had to ask the question, you know? So right. I don't really think that you can create a clickable moment. You through conversation, they tell you the clickable moment. So 
So I totally agree. Like the story will always come to light. It's not a thing that you have to fabricate. Yeah. yeah, the yeah John, I just want to say the John Wall, the John Wall reporting was great. And what, <laughs> and what I took from what I took from that, uh, Bill, is the uh, let's not invite John Wall into the podcast. <laughs> tell me, could you tell me this now? I, I guess I'm not supposed to admit this. Oh, wait, do not what say happened? you can't play spades. What? Do you know how to play spades? Uh, yeah, I mean, I could. I, well, let me bid, ask you a question. Wait, wait, is, do you play Bidwist? Of course. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Spades is like the, is like the is easier like the version. Very, that's the yeah, ghetto. Like the that's the ghetto version. <laughs> no, no. I, I can play Bid and Whist. I can, of course I can play Bid Whist. I mean, I can play well enough that if right. you need one person to come in. You can do it. You I can be that play guy. And may even get lucky and run a Boston or something. But if you say spades, I'm like, I mean, I could, if you kind of coach me up. But, yeah. but tell me what, but tell me what. John the, Wall. What happened? Oh, so John Wall was doing an interview on ESPN for one of their football shows. Maybe it was NFL Live. I'm not sure, but one of their football shows. <laughs> and they're in like a three box. And during the interview, John Wall is like adamantly playing space. I mean, like talking to his partner, saying how many books he's going to get. Like at one point interview. he was even like, Sorry, can you repeat that question? Because he was playing. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> was, that was that was the craziest. He's like he's like dealing or whatever, looking at his yeah. looking at his hand, and he's like they asking him a question. He's like, uh, what what'd you say? Can you yeah, what that? was that? <laughs> On national TV, so it it created a very good moment because I think you know every black family plays space, so we know how serious it is. You're in the middle of that game, but everyone's like, hey, we couldn't put the game down for a couple of minutes. <laughs> And they were clearly in a transitional phase. Like, they just got done dealing. They're figuring out, you know, oh how many books God. they could get. But what's the difference? I mean, now, I don't, I don't want to have my black card taken. I do take, I do play whist. Yeah. But what's the difference between spades and whist? I mean, I, so I mean, I, yeah. I am like, I'm an expert spades player. I love spades. Bidwist, I'm not as good at. I just know it's like, bidwist, I think you choose what the high, right? Right. right. Like, you yeah, choose what, what, if what the spade would be, right? Yeah, you, you choose you, you whatever the no high trouble. suit is or what the spade yeah, would be. It exactly. changes. Right. Spades, it's always the spade. You can either play with ace high, you can play with deuces, you can play joker high, all those different things. But the spade is always the trump card. Oh, oh, well, here is the big witch. You can say no trump. You know. Yeah, uh, nah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, a little complicated. That's another. I never learned. I never really learned how to play bidwits. I just. I remember my parents used to play. I tried. I watched. Wait a minute. Maybe. Maybe. Spades, I'll take, spades is the easier maybe version. Maybe I take your black card. Maybe yeah, I take. Yeah. Card. I think it's, no, gener it's generational. My grandma taught me how to play every card game, and she taught as bidwits at one point. But once I learned spades, I was like, I like spades. So play I don't bridge? really remember bidwits. Y'all play bridge? No, I never. She did. taught me bridge. I mean, we used to play like Pokino. I mean, she taught me <laughs> every game that she could. So I am very thankful to my grandma because the worst <laughs> thing you can do is go to like a party or a game night or a holiday. And right. the moment you say you don't know how to play spades, oh, no, it's can't. like you got to get kicked out the house. Because right. yeah. nobody right. want to teach you how to play spades. They just want to say, you don't know how to play spades? Nobody <laughs> wants to teach you that. I went to an HBCU, and that's like same thing with like with bid whist. Right. I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you went and said, I, I had to lie and say, you know, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it was uh, unbelievable. So anyway, that, like, I know how to play, but uh, I don't feel like it tonight. <laughs> and don't and don't and don't play and screw up. You know, right? 100%. Same thing. Oh my god. Yeah. All right. Well, any, any, anyway, let's get back on. <laughs> that's the real part of black car. I wonder how many white people. There got to be white people. I mean, probably they've invented bid whisk or spades. Do you think white people invented spades? Well, so I, they, I, I, hate, I always hated the word spades. In, I think it's most prominent in black communities. But right. I actually think that bridge is the game that, that, no, like I don't, I don't know for sure, honestly, but I, we, I don't know that many white Let's do that's a homework like, assignment. That's yes. a homework yeah, assignment. Yeah, I find out who invented spades. Because it may have been a Ku Klux Klan person who invented spades. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like the it's like the Star Spangled Banner, <laughs> yeah, verse verse two and three. Right. Uh, hey, so so we didn't, uh, speaking of that, that's that tra that's a great transition to the bubble. Was there a lot of spades playing in the bubble? Uh, Actually, what was, was the bubble? There was a lot of a lot of card playing happening in the bubble. Whether it was spades <laughs> or the phase ten, there was a lot of just like games in general. People were trying to figure out some way to pass the time, you know. Um, but bubble was great. You know, I always say like, 
people always say like, what was the, what did the bubble feel like? Like what was bubble like? And I was like, what didn't the bubble feel like? It was mm. a very layered experience, you know, mm. we like, every, obviously everybody was dealing with the social injustice happening in the world, police brutality happening in the world on top of a pandemic, mm. all while trying to win a championship. Like there was so much going on though. So there were so many different experiences. I wouldn't say people felt the same every day. Like every day felt different. The things that you did every day, you, you tried your best to make difference. So it was, it was a lot, but the same way there was heavy moments, like, you know, like with Jacob Blake, there was also very light, fun, happy moments. You know, you can be upset and frustrated and sad and angry, but you make room for other things too. So I think that's what, that's what the bubble was for sure. What, what was it like? Uh, uh, well, man, there's so much stuff I want, cause I just think as a journalist, um, that had to be a historic moment. I, was, I told somebody, Spears, that I guess if I was like 20 years younger or something like that, I would have like demanded to go. But yeah. then at a certain point, I said, you know, I don't know, three months, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't, and at, at, at a certain being, I, I don't know, but forget that. But but um, let's let's talk about the competition. Just uh, what, what did you think about uh, the competition? Oh, I thought it was great. I mean, some of the most exciting basketball I've ever seen, some amazing performances. And one thing I always told people was the cool thing about the bubble is you were forced to watch guys that maybe you wouldn't normally. And so it showcased a lot of the, the talent that isn't, you know, in the sexy cities like Miami or LA or Boston, you know, it was all of them. So you got to watch Jamal Murray and see how good he was. Uh, Jokic, saw how good he was. More attention was on Donovan Mitchell and his performances. Devin Booker was somebody else. And was like, well, this guy so that's very good. So you saw a lot of good players that you wouldn't normally. You also saw stars slowly inching to superstar, you know, people like Luca, people like Jason Tatum. So the bubble basketball was amazing. I mean, the product of the actual game, the actual competition, I think was second to none. Uh, do, you, do you think this was harder to win? Um, uh, this 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 championship is clearly going to have asterisks for for all types of reasons. Do you think this was a more challenging uh, championship to win, uh, yeah. or do you think it was it was um, easier because the level, the playing field was level? There was no travel. Everybody yeah. got the same rims. You know. I think it was actually harder. Um, and granted, I was somebody who. And all honesty coming in, the people was like, whoever wins this, it don't even matter, don't even count, blah, blah. But no, after like being there and seeing what it was like, it, it was harder. I mm. mean, the, and I think so much of it was really just the mental toll. Like, you know, mm. we talk about the travel and stuff, but when you're on the outside world, when you're not playing a game, you can get away from basketball. Right. A lot of people have their release of their family or like going to their favorite restaurant, just like doing things that they can do as a normal person. But here, like you don't get away from, I say, I still think I'm in the bubble. I mean, in the bubble, <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the bubble, you don't get away from basketball. Like you're living next to your opponent. You see mm. them on the elevator. Mm. You see them at the pool. Like it, it's a lot. And, there was also things just happening in the world that you couldn't get out and go to. Mm. Families didn't come until much later. So you're thinking about that. The only thing you were in the bubble was a basketball player. Um, and I think that that weighed on people a bunch. Now, granted, I'm not saying it was like astronomically more difficult than the other ones. But if, you know, I would say if the bubble was at a 100, I think the championships outside of the bubble are like a 90. Like, wow. I, I don't think it was that wow. much of a gap, but I do think it was one of the harder championships wow. to win. Well, you know, in terms of like the stress, I guess the psychological stress, talk about that a little more. You know, obviously Paul George uh, came out and talked about it, you know, yeah. got, got kind of a mixed reaction uh, yeah. from people about talking about it. But you, you know, you talk to a lot of players. Is that something that you either, you know, not, you know, either if they told you straight up or not, is it something that you felt was like a, a really big um, obstacle in terms of what they had to deal with? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a couple of things that stick out to me. Like, for example, when, um, when Jacob Blake was shot 
and Fred VanVleet had his press conference and he was very emotional. You could tell it was weighing on him a lot. And when I was asked him a question, I just asked him how he was doing because I could tell that it was something that was very, you know, heavy on his heart. And, you know, he gave this very long answer about how seeing things like this makes people depreciate life and how it makes you question yourself and how he has some survivor's remorse. And he talked about how his dad was killed when he was young. So these things were weighing on him. So that's somebody that I know in that moment, just like needed somebody to say like, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. Um, That's, that's definitely one that sticks out, but I know that people were dealing with mental issues and some mental like, you know, hurdles they were trying to overcome in the bubble because every morning when we wake up, we would do this app where you would check your temperature, you would check your pulse, and you did all that before you went to go get tested. But at the end of the app, it asked you if you wanted to speak to a mental health professional because a lot of people, it was just a lot, you know, four walls all the time, same thing all the time. And you don't know what people's lives are like outside of the bubble. So you don't know how people actually cope with these issues, but whatever they were doing to cope with it, they didn't have in the bubble. So it was, I think it was difficult for, for many players. How, how, did, how did you cope? What was your, what was your routine? Were you there for the whole time? So I was there for two months. I ended up leaving <laughs> early to go to my uncle's funeral. But I was, I never felt like it was like a too much. Honestly, I was happy to just be there. Right. You know, like right. I was really trying to ask good questions and bring good stories and take good video. Like I found a lot of joy in that. Obviously, I deeply missed my family and my loved ones, my friends. Like I deeply missed them. Um, I just think in general, I'm a person that's like, oh, well, like it will, it'll be done. You know, I'm not here mm-hmm. forever. So. Exactly. It was exactly. just... You know, it was just getting to the end, which it, which was which is the thing for me. And it turns like, out you were safer than the rest of us. One hundred percent, and that was one hundred percent. And I'm like, y'all, I don't want to leave. I know nobody here. <laughs> but one thing I will say, I actually felt more sad when I left the bubble because, yeah. obviously, because my uncle passed. But I mean, from work you start to feel like the work that you're doing now is insignificant. Yeah. Because you left like the epicenter of what everybody cared about. And you're yeah. on, I was on this like two month high of being right in the middle of like the most important thing happening in sports. Yeah. And then you leave and you're watching it on TV and you're yeah. seeing all the news mm. come on Twitter. And there were some times I didn't want to watch the games mm. because it made me so upset that I wasn't there. Yeah. Um, She's so, a true journalist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there, journalist. Was, there, was, there was a transition for me leaving the bubble and it was a much harder transition than living in Orlando for me personally. Right. Yeah, I, actually that, thought, I actually thought about that. Like, you know, when the bubble, you know, ended with LeBron winning the championship and journalists leave the bubble, bubble come home when they have to. And I'm like, what are they going to write about now? Like, 100%. It's like, let's go back. It's like, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, it's like the, uh, the, the only thing I, I'm like being, a, I've covered Olympics and it's the same thing. I mean, you're only there for like a month. Yeah. But it's the same thing. And then I, I, any event, the thing I always hate is the end. It's kind of like when the circus leaves town mm-hmm. and it's always whether it's a Super Bowl, the Olympics, whatever. And you're, you're right, Taylor. And, and it's, but that's the journalist thing. It's like what other people, uh, kind of get are afraid of or turned off. That's what turns us on. Oh yeah, to, we want to go. I mean, like right. that was historic. There, right. it was a first and an only. Yeah. And so many things happened. Like it was history, and I just feel so thankful that I was able to really record history and be a part of history and in years to come when there's these documentaries about the bubble and books about the bubble but like i was there i'll be able to like one day tell my future kids about this time in the bubble mm. so i i really enjoyed it i was happy i was able to go there's not gonna be another bubble but if there was i'd go right back you don't, you don't think without so without hesitation think, <laughs> yeah. you don't think they're going to uh try to recreate this some kind of way 
I mean, maybe at at like maps there'd be like regional bubbles, but I don't even think they do that. I just can't see them doing that again. Mm. But like I said, if they did, sign me up. I'll be on the first plane to Orlando. One of, obviously, one of the biggest stories of the bubble was the racial justice, the Black Lives Matter on the court, mm-hmm. the names on the back, um, the the boycott, the the Bucks uh, boycott or strike, whatever you want to call it. Um, and again, talking to you who, who has relationships with a lot of these players, you know what you know, I, you know I think is obviously genuine, but how you know how genuine is it? Like how? Like, is this something that's that's always on their minds? And, and and where do you see it going from here now that there is no bubble? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some who care deeply about the advancement and progression of Black people and the, you know, eradication of racism and police brutality, right? Like, Chris Paul is someone, this is his life's work. I would say he cares just as much about this as he does basketball, if not more. I'd probably hmm. say more. You know, like this is what he believes in. He wants players to be educated. He wanted players to leave that bubble with one specific thing that they felt fully educated on and cared a lot about so that it lasted and they championed that cause post bubble. Like this is what he believes in, cares about. And one thing that's great about Chris Paul is really his main objective is like passing that torch, you know? He's like, this is a thing that we all have to care about. He doesn't make it about him. He's about lifting up the players because eventually this isn't gonna be a Chris Paul, Melo, LeBron, Lee. Like that's going to end, right? So you have to help the next guys coming up. And that's what all those older guys really try to, to focus on. So Chris Paul is one. On the coaching side, Doc Rivers Hmm. emerged as such a prominent and important voice in this fight. He was a very strong voice in that meeting where players are trying to figure out what they could do next. Um, So there's a lot of guys who really, really believe in this work. Jalen Brown is someone, one of the younger guys who Mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys saw drove from Boston to Atlanta to protest. Uh, Donovan Mitchell is someone like when I think of that like new school of leaders in terms of this, I think of Jalen Brown and Donovan Mitchell and Trey Young. Like these guys um, have really put a lot of it, you know, on their back and want to want to give that to the masses. Same thing, Malcolm Brogdon. They're the future of the NBA. I feel like is in good hands because there's a lot of thoughtful and and smart and determined guys who are trying to find plans and things that they can do. It's, the, the, the awakening is fascinating to me. I, I actually got a call from a player, an NFL player uh, during training camp who uh, ordered uh, four boxes of $40 million slaves uh, to, to, to pass out to teammates. And um, it, that's not a commercial, but it, it, <laughs> it, 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 it was, but it was, um, it was, I, I have so much, I'm encouraged by this next generation. Mm-hmm, well, not, not the next, but that generation, that 25, 26, 27, because it seems like they've really absorbed this. They've absorbed. And, and, and I want to ask you that about LeBron. It seems like the message that he has taught everybody is that you can be wealthy and all that, but you could still be black, you can still be powerful, and your money could be, as, as, as opposed to being a shackle that you don't want to lose, it could actually be empowering. Yeah. And I was wondering if, 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 if your view of LeBron changed or, or how you saw LeBron mm-hmm. going in and yeah. how you see him now. You know, I would say, like just in general, that was one of the coolest parts of the bubble was being able to so closely cover someone's career. You know, somebody who, in a lot of ways, defines the sport. I think that's rare that you get to, like, every day ask that person a question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, every day watch them in practice or every day watch them in a game, I think, is... um, was something that I, I take with me from that experience. But, yes, the thing about LeBron was he kept it at the forefront. And he was on the way to winning a championship, but kept it in the forefront. That's what, that's what his mind was on. 
And the Lakers were a team that were willing to leave the bubble, knowing that they probably were going to win it all. So I would say I already thought highly of LeBron in the sense that he has exceeded every expectation that's ever been set in front of him. Um, He is the best. Like I have already had that thought of him in my mind, but then being in the bubble and seeing how he brought that same thought and same, you know, work ethic and same determination to improving our people um, definitely kind of put him in a new elevated light for me, for sure. So what's your one, two, three now? Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> have you said, said all but she, that? <laughs> she's too, she's too young for MJ though. You're too oh, young for Jordan. Hey, don't let her off the hook. Don't, don't <laughs> give her, don't I give her am, a life rap. Know, I no. agree, I agree, Jamal. But really, and I mean this. Yeah, I she's a historian. That, Come on. That's knows, true, that's true. He knows who George so Washington is. Athletes, we tie our connection to them to our emotional connection to them. Okay. So when I hear people talk about Jordan, obviously he's like, go, 100%. But you also have such an intense opinion on that because of how he made you feel. Right, exactly. I don't know how he would have made me feel. Right. Because I wasn't, you know, of a, you know, of a like a large enough age when when he was but Taylor. At his you know how you'd feel if he told you Republicans buy sneakers too. How would you feel about <laughs> that? That's timeless, right? I would not love it, but I will say something that's been really great about Michael Jordan is this evolution that we've seen. I know earlier we were talking about like awakenings and I don't know him personally enough to say this was his awakening, but I think we have definitely seen him evolve and his place in this like social justice landscape has certainly, certainly um, evolved. We see where he is putting his money is much different than where he's putting his money in the prime of his career. Also in that call that took place after the meeting, Michael Jordan was on that call. He was saying, you know, I am here on this call, not as a former player, not as an owner, but as a black man. And that's something that I think a lot of black people at that time would have never guessed they'd hear him say or think. But I think he is really, I think, changing in a way that that a lot of people are responding to. But we needed you then, brother. It's not nice <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, but listen, I'm, Bill, I'm, Bill's I, not, I, Bill's I not actually, forgiving him. I actually him. have a question for you, Bill. I, and I really, this is something I, I ask my uh-huh. friends a lot, something I wonder a lot. Do we fault a person if they don't want to be that person? Is no. that something that you have to do? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no, no, you don't. And, I, and it's funny you mentioned it. Not funny, but I've evolved to the extent that, particularly if, if you look at our history here, 400 years, we can't get into these binary kind of decisions. You know, these things like th- we we need this, we need this. We need th- our survival depends on diversity, you know. So yeah, we need we need a MJ, mm-hmm. we need a LeBron, we need Kareem, yeah. we need Wilma Rudolph, we need you know, and, and who knows, we may even need some, you know, Sage Steele. I mean, that that gets tricky. To answer your question, I, I think you're absolutely right uh, that we don't. Know, but all I'm saying, though, this was Shirley Chisholm said when she was running for president. And she told a lot of these the black uh, politicians that I'm not asking you to help me, just don't hurt me. Mm. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's where I'm coming from. Is okay, we have a just totally. hurt us. You know, if if I'm planning to escape, you may not be, but don't tell on me. Right. You know, don't don't go to the master and then inform and hurt me. You know, and I think you still have to. We still have to draw the line. And, and that's and, fair. That's we fair. have to draw the line. So it's a thin. But it's, you know, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a thin line. We've been we've been walking for for four centuries. Um, who's to tell you how who's black and who's not? You know, yeah. who, who's the arbiter of blackness? But there is a thing that we it's kind of like playing spades and bid whisk. You know, you you know things without putting it down in black and white. You know who's hurting you, and you know who's pushing you forward. You know. When I pass you the torch, like you talked about Chris Paul and all that, you know, I'm passing you the torch. I'm making you take the torch. Mm-hmm. Don't fucking intentionally drop it, or don't, yeah. don't say I ain't taking the torch. I ain't down with that. Or, or don't, 
No, some people don't want to pass the torch. They want to keep running. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to run through the box. So that's a, a, a long drawn out way of saying. I just think it, it's not a binary thing anymore. We need everybody, but just there's a core that you're down with black folks getting into the next century that helping us get For to sure. the next century. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a great answer. And I really like that Shirley Chisholm quote. I might have to use that. <laughs> oh, we, listen, we steal from each other all the hostiles from somebody. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, we started talking about your uh, uncle, Lou Brock. And then that generation, man, you know, um, it was Brock. We just lost Gibson. Um, I just did a, a, a column for the undefeated. I guess it's going up now on Andre Dawson. Uh, they created the, um, the uh, I've been on this campaign to get Kurt Flood into the Hall of Fame. And they just created, the Players Association created this Lou Brock Award uh, given to, an, and so uh, Andre Dawson uh, is the first recipient. But I just want, just one thing, just more, one more memory, uh, remembrance of Lou Brock. Cause he came up in that era. Mm-hmm. He came up in a really pivotal era of of um, black athletes uh, during that sort of early part of the civil rights movement. All that. Yeah. Uh, I just want you to. I just wanted to end with you talking about Brock. What he meant to you. What do you think he meant? You know, globally. Because I think it's it's really he's very he was very very a very important. Uh, For sure. Very important figure. You know, it, it's funny because, so I don't love baseball. I, I really like baseball, but I don't love baseball. Um, I love the Cardinals though. Big yeah. Cardinals fan, have been since I was a kid. And, you know, growing up, I never, because, you know, he was like older than me, I never really realized just how good he was. Probably not until I was in like a senior in high school. I went off to college. Mm. I just, I never, he was just Uncle Lou. I never really thought about it. When I was growing up and we would go to Bush Stadium and they would be saying, Lou, I remember one time looking at my mom and like asking why they were booing. Because <laughs> I thought they were booing us. I'm like, because he was on the field, like doing the first pitch and all that. And but when I went to school, like obviously going to University of Illinois, it's in Southern Illinois, there's a lot of Cardinals fans. So I would always say, oh, I love the Cardinals. I'm a Cardinals fan. They're like, why? You're from Georgia. I'm like, oh, my uncle's Lou Brock. And everyone's like, what? I'm like, <laughs> okay, like he really was, you know, as good as everybody's always talking about him being, you know, this good. But when someone is your family, you're not just like always thinking about that. And so through time, I have really realized just the impact that he has had on baseball on black people in baseball, on people in general. And as much as we talk about how great of a player he was, how amazing he was at stealing the base, how quick he was, he is someone who has shown me that what you're great at isn't necessarily your gift. Mm -hmm. He was great at baseball, but to me, his gift was how he made people feel Mm. and the kind person that he was and that every single human that interacted with him had something amazing to say. Mm. Like, I think that was his actual gift. And, you know, when I was, you know, posting some photos of us and some memories, I was just flooded with so many tweets of people saying that like they were at a restaurant and they saw him. And when they said, hi, he asked, them to join him for lunch or dinner. Mm. Or I think about when he came to my college graduation and mm. there was a line of people wanting to take photos with him and he took every single mm. one. Mm. Or my professor was talking to him. So it was a Cardinals yeah. fan. And he asked the professor to come eat with us for our, my graduation dinner after. Like mm. he loved people. And like mm. that was the gift that he had. Not mm. just that he was a great man, but that he was a good man. Mm. And I think that really is what sticks out to me the most um, about him and how I hope he will be remembered. He was somebody who really would tell me always like trust in your ability Mm. and believe in your ability. And I know that's what he would want for 
for all people. So when I think of, of my Uncle Lou, that's, that's what sticks out to me the most about him and his life. Mm -hmm. oh, that was so eloquent. Well, yeah. that, the great Taylor Rooks. If, if somebody could say that about each of us at the end of our lives, I mean, right. life is worth living, that you are a good human being. But that was great. Although I was angry when the Cubs traded him. Yes. I'm like, yeah, are you, I mean, are you guys kidding me? Are you nuts? Ever, right? Bill's, Bill's, a, Bill's a Chicago guy. Yeah, but I'm not. A, I was never a Cubs guy. I mean, I was. I grew up in the South Side of Chicago, so the White Sox. But and all those yeah. guys, all the Cubs lived on the South Side of Chicago. Uh -huh. So you see him, but I'm saying you're trading Lou. Are you out of your mind? Are you nuts? <laughs> but anyway, I remember him telling me once for for the longest he was driving back and forth between Chicago and St. Louis, like after that trade had taken place, because, you know, you weren't, it, the pay wasn't like it is now, right? At that time, he couldn't move there yet. So right. he was going back and forth. So but I always say that, um, worst trade ever. Worst trade ever. <laughs> yeah. And I, I always, yeah. you know, I always grew up, always you know, knew about him being a Hall of Famer, great player, but also he was, he was, uh, I always, always remember that, that the uh, historical, a tribe called Quest verse. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget that. Scorny legs, but I moved just like Lou Brock. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Lou Brock took it to a whole nother level mm -hmm. with base stealing. I mean, a whole nother level. And did it you know? with ease. Yeah, with right. Ease. He was yeah. a, the pop up thing and all that. No, Lou Brock was. <laughs> and, that, and that team, I mean, I know we're ending the show, but I like that St. Louis team because they were so black, you know, uh, Gibson who was just like a whole nother level of like, you know, Gibson, uh, Brock, uh, yeah. even Flood, Kurt Flood. I mean, Kurt Flood before that, I mean, just generationally, they had some of the most important uh, Kurt Flood taking on baseball. Yeah. Gibson, just fear. Uh, and they Brock, were like, they were just cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they were cool. So it's, I agree. Uh, I agree. In their in their basement at their home in um, St. Charles, it's like all just like Cardinals memorabilia. Like they have old seeds from Bush State. Like it's just it's this whole done up thing. And the reason I say that is because when we were younger, all we would do was rip and run through there. I mean, there was stuff that was like, if you mess it up, you should probably be in trouble. <laughs> He didn't care. He mm. let us wear his World Series rings. Mm. He would let us put on all the hat. Like we could do whatever. Like just he loved baseball, obviously, but he really just like loved people. He was like, mm. I want you guys to enjoy this. Like I enjoy this for my career. Like the me and my little cousins, we would just run around there like it was nothing. Or he had this, um, he had this red Hummer, <laughs> and the license plate said Hall of Fame '85 on it. <laughs> But we all thought the Hummers were so cool. So we would just be like, can you drive us around the Hummer? We probably asked him 10 times within three hours. And every time we asked him, he would pile us up in that Hummer, mm. let us ride around the neighborhood. So he was just like a kind, kind human. Did he have children? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, he has three children. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, wow, it's wonderful Taylor Rooks. Man, this is, uh, uh, man, this has been great, Taylor. And just the, the uh, thing I've always uh, really enjoyed about you and respected about you is just this last 10 minutes of the history that you understand. And I, I don't know if a lot of journalists understand, particularly black journalists, that the key to all this stuff is really understanding the, like you talked about earlier, the evolution and the history. Yeah. And if you don't understand that, you're kind of lost because you're always dealing with today. You yeah, know? So, totally. Thank I you agree. for this. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. And uh, thank you. You've been kind to give us all this much time. And, and you talk about spades, big bits, <laughs> and all that. But uh, this is a great Taylor Rook. She's a yes. uh, broadcaster, reporter. Please report, listen to uh, Take It There with Taylor Rooks. Think you're going to have Jamal Murphy on your show soon? Oh yeah, come on down. Jamal. Soon, soon. <laughs> All right, hey, but Ted, thanks so much for this and uh, tons of respect. And um, yeah, let's just keep grinding. Yes. Thank yes. you so much, and truly, it is always a pleasure. I still remember when I met you. I was like, oh my god, give me sign my book. So I am just, I'm very thankful and honored to be able to share this space with you both. So beautiful. Thank you for and having we have you all next time, just in that corner to your left. That'll oh, be it's got to be poster, on display. The poster, totally. the poster right, right. there. <laughs> life, life size, life size. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you, guys. Thank, thank, thank you, Taylor. Taylor. Take care. Bye. <laughs> so All there right. you had it. There you had your, another great guest. Yes. Yes, and we, like you said, well, we, that, went, that was we, we went through a lot with that with that podcast. From a you lot, said spades, yeah. bidwits to Lou Brock, uh, the bubble. Uh, we covered uh, a lot. That was great. That was great. The great, the great Taylor Rooks. Before we get out of here, uh, keep listening to the podcast. Um, subscribe to the podcast. Rate the podcast. Give us five stars. Review the podcast. If you do that, it helps circulation of the show. Gets us more out there. Tell a friend if you like the podcast. Tell a friend. Tell a friend to tell a friend. And follow us on social media. On Instagram at Bros Pod, on Twitter at Bros Pod, and on Facebook, Bill Roden on Sports. And we will, of course, be back next week with some more great content. Hey, everybody, continue to stay safe, stay focused. And it ain't over, you know. No, no it ain't over. It, it ain't over. Vote. I mean, Get out there and vote. I'm voting. Even in New York, I've never voted early in my life. I'm going to, and I know he's going to win. I know Biden's going to win New York, but I'm, I'm going to vote uh, Saturday when they, when they <laughs> open early voting. That's right. That's right. And I'm going to get my flu shot. Yeah, get your flu shot. I got mine last month. All right. All right. Hey, everybody, stay safe. Until we uh, talk to you next week, uh, you know, God bless. Bye. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.